we need to understand what occurred in verse 24. If you remember, the Gentiles are grafted into the branches of the olive tree so that they would be a part of the new covenant. This is part of the covenant now that was taken from the Jews, given to the Gentiles for a specific period of time. The root of the olive trees in in those verses referred to the patriarchs and the blessings that sprung from them. And the Gentiles would obtain those blessings that were previously given to Israel because the branches were broken off so that they could be grafted in. However, those that were broken off will again be grafted in if they express faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So now we come to verse 25, and this is a continuation of what he was thinking about or writing about. And once again, what they are told is not to be proud because he tells them just because you were grafted in, don't get, don't get prideful. Listen to what he says. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This is basically he's saying don't be proud. What happens when we get wise in our own sight? Well, 1 Corinthians tells us a little bit that Paul writes, the same author writes in 1 Corinthians, he says, For consider your calling, brothers... Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. In other words, foolishness to the Jews and to to the Greeks. But this was wise. And so don't be wise, Gentiles, is what he's saying. He goes on to say in 1 Corinthians, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. We've heard that from the Jews as they considered the Gentiles to be lower than dogs. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus said when a woman came to ask about healing of one of uh, her children. She says, he says to her, We do not give our bread to dogs. That's how the Jews thought of them. Now, that wasn't what Jesus was thinking. He just was eliciting a response from her, which was a response of faith. But we understand that God chooses that which is low. Again, in 1 Corinthians, it says, So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord so what he's doing in verse 25 is saying look don't be wise guys don't do that don't be proud because your salvation is of the Jews and you need to understand that He wants them then to know that a partial hardening has come upon the Jews and upon Israel. But partial does not mean full. They have been given a spirit of stupor, as we saw in the previous verses, but it's not forever. And when will this stupor be taken away? It says, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, what does that mean? It means that when the last Gentile on the earth is saved, 
the Lord will return and appear. And in verse 26, it says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, there's a lot of argument concerning this verse. Let me give you those. The premillennialist and the dispensationalist see this as Israel being saved as a future national geopolitical restoration. The amillennialist sees this as signifying that the church fulfills Israel's promise by becoming the true Israel. The postmillennialist sees in this statement the promise of a continual world conversion as included Israel herself. I believe that this is talking, Paul is talking about ethnic Israel, and ethnic Israel will be saved when Jesus appears, just like Paul was saved when Jesus appeared to him. That's why he says this is a mystery. This is something that God is going to reveal. It's a mystery. Verse 26 says the deliverer, that is Christ, will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness. Now that word in the Greek basically means unbelief. In other words, God is going to banish when Jesus appears all unbelief because they're going to see him and when they see him what are they going to do like Paul they will believe when you see something that miraculous you will believe that's why it's a mystery it's going to happen just they're going to be in ungodliness or unbelief and then all of a sudden Jesus comes and appears and he takes away their sin now this is a point you need to understand about this all those Jews that will be saved are going to be saved the same way that we are saved. They're going to see Jesus. He is going to grant them repentance, and they will cry out unto him in faith, believing in him. That is what's going to happen. But one of the things we need to notice that is application to us is that the categories of being ungodly are the, all those who are in unbelief. So when we talk about ungodliness, oftentimes we go and we think, oh, it's all this sin and all this, these terrible things that they commit. However, ungodliness throughout the Scripture oftentimes is relegated to the realm of just unbelief. So therefore, an unbelieving person is characterized as an ungodly person. Psalm 1, what does David say? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, the ones who do not believe. Because their worldview is different from our worldview. So we do not walk in that counsel. We do not take it up. We do not sit in the way of sinners, stand in the way, uh, uh, sit in the way of scoffers, stand in the way of sinners. We don't do that kind of thing because we are people of belief, the ungodly unbelief in Jesus Christ our Lord. So the practical application is when you are out and about and understanding and correlating and, and uh, all the things that go on in life and you put them all together, you're going to have categories that where people are going to be in unbelief and belief. Whose counsel do you listen to? 
Make sure you have that discernment. In fact, he goes on in verse 28. Notice what he says. As regards the gospel, right now they are enemies of God for your sake. Enemies of God. So I want you to look at this. Paul is presenting us two conditions. Two conditions because the following part says, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So there's two conditions. You're either an enemy of God or you're the elect of God. You're either saved or you're lost. That basically are the two categories that everyone falls in. In other words, there is no neutrality, folks. There's not people riding the fence. It's either saved or unsaved. And that's what we were. That's what all Gentiles were before they trusted in Jesus. Colossians says this, chapter 1. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds... That was all of us. We're hostile, enemies of God. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above approach before him. So what we need to do is what Paul is saying as regards the gospel, verse 28, we ought to also, by way of application, see people as lost or saved. If they are lost then understand they're lost and how they're going to act. Don't be surprised that lost people act like lost people. It is their nature. That is what they're going to do. That's what we did before we came to Christ. We acted according to our nature. So don't be surprised when a lost person in your presence says something lost. That's the way they are. And if they are lost, make it a point to pray for them. Pray for their salvation. As you're hearing them and you're interacting with them, pray for them. Shoot up that silent prayer unto the Lord and pray for them that the Lord would save them. Witness to them. Give them a track. Do whatever you can, but witness to them. Be evangelists. Be ambassadors for Christ. That's what we are told to do. Now, if they are saved, rejoice with them and pray for them as well that God would continue to bless them. So we see that there's two conditions. You're lost or you're saved. But we also see two perspectives on Israel when we look at these verses. They are enemies right now away from God because of their unbelief. But they are also beloved because of election. How does that work? Enemies yet beloved. Well, if you remember, when God elects a person he foreknows them or foreloved them before eternity of the foundations of eternity and therefore they are still beloved we don't know who the elect are but they may be at this point enemies but at some point they'll be beloved as long as they continue in unbelief they're enemies but when they come to Christ they're beloved why because God chose them from the foundation of the world so therefore they are following then on two perspectives. They're enemies right now, but they're beloved. And why are they beloved? It says, it is for the sake of their forefathers, not because of them or that God finds anything good in them at this point in time, but because of their forefathers, they will be saved. 
to illustrate the point, R.C. Sproul uh, comments in his commentary on Romans about uh, that this is beautifully, beautifully illustrated in 2 Samuel chapter 9. So I'm going to ask you to do that. Find 2 Samuel chapter 9 in your Bible. It's in the Old Testament, and we'll see this being played out in the life of David and Mephibosheth. Chapter 9, it's a very short chapter. I'm going to read the whole thing so you can follow along with me because it is a fantastic story about showing kindness because of someone's father. It says, and David says, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I might show kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel at Lodibar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. David said, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should regard, uh, show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him, and they shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Meshibbethus, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's son. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. Here's how the story goes. Saul and Jonathan were killed. David ascends to the throne. The house of Saul and Jonathan perhaps thought that David would then do like other kings had done and wiped out preceding families of those who reigned before them. A nurse picks him up. This young Mephibosheth runs, slips, falls, breaks the legs. He becomes, he becomes lame in both legs. He goes to a place called Lodi Bar. Lodi Bar was a place that was designated in the Old Testament for those who were seeking a place of refuge because of something that they might have done, not intentionally, but they might have done that the Lord set up. For example, it tells us, that in the uh, in in the books of Moses, that those places were set up so that if someone killed someone accidentally, they would have a place of refuge for someone could not come and get revenge. 
Now think about this. Here Mephibosheth is growing up in this place. He already has a son himself. He's growing up in this. And then here comes David saying, is there anyone left from this kingdom that I can show kindness for the sake of Jonathan? So they go and they get him. You can imagine his emotions as he's thinking about this as the king's guard are coming to take him away. What is going to happen to him? And when he gets there, he understands that he's nothing but a dead dog in the sight of King David. And David turns around and graciously and mercifully says, I will restore to you a place at the king's table for the sake of your father beautiful act of redemption and that's what God is going to do with the Jews beautiful acts of redemption why because there's something good in them no they're as dead dogs as well just like all of us were before we came to Christ but before the sake of the fathers the forefathers the covenant that God made with Abraham Isaac and Jacob He says, I will bring them back. I will restore. I will graft them in again so that they will be saved. That's the wonderful, wonderful thing that God says he is going to do. Now, I want you to look again at the next statement, what he says. Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable what does that mean here's what I believe it means the gifts I believe he's referring to are found in chapter 9 as we went through those before it says they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption the glory the covenants the giving of the law the worship and the promises to them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So those are the gifts that he has been given. But the calling, what is the calling? The calling refers back to chapter 8. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, if they are called, what Paul says... The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They will be called. They will come to know Christ. It's irrevocable. It's immutable. It will not change. Now, how is that a comfort to us in this day and time? Think about that. Though we may sin, as believers, he still won't cast us out. He may send corrective discipline to get us to amend our ways, which he does when we go into sin willingly, but he will not take away his calling on our lives. So we see what God has done in these verses is this. He is saying, here you are. I want you to understand this mystery. There's a partial hardening When the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, Jesus returns, Israel will be saved. He will take away their sins. Even though they're enemies, but as regard to election, they are beloved for the sake of the forefathers because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And then he makes an explanation, gives an explanation in verse 30 and 31. Notice what he said. He said, just as 
you, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. So we find a comparison. The Gentiles were once disobedient and they received mercy because the Jews were disobedient. And remember, he says, I put a stupor in their hearts so they cannot see so that they would be jealous. Likewise, though, it says that they also at some point in time will receive mercy. I want you to understand that we need to look just real quickly at this. What is this mercy that we're talking about? Mercy is this. It's the ready inclination of God to relieve the misery of fallen creatures. It is the inclination of God to relieve the misery of fallen creatures. We are miserable without Christ. Ephesians says that those who were lost in chapter 2, and you were dead in trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. Now, what kind of mercy is this that he is granting to them? Verse uh, 31, they have been disobedient. In order that mercy shown to you, may now, they may now receive mercy. What kind of mercy is it that they are receiving? Folks, there are three types of mercy. Understand it. There's general, special, and sovereign mercy in the mercy of God. General mercy basically is the mercy that God has for all of his creation. Psalm 145 says this, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. That just doesn't imply to mankind his mercy is over this creation. We learn from Paul that this creation is groaning until God makes all things new. But he gives it mercy. The reason that it blooms, the reason that it produces fruit, produces wheat, produces crops is the mercy of God. He allows it to happen. He basically is pitying and having compassion on the creation that he made. That means the physical creation as well as us. So there is a general mercy of God. Now, the special mercy of God is that which is exercised towards mankind and is temporal for those who are lost. What do I mean? Matthew 5, Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven for he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. We all stand in special mercy as well. It rains on us. It rains on the unjust. It rains on the believer and the unbeliever. That's what he says. Love your enemies. Pray for them who persecute you. But then there is that sovereign mercy. 
solely reserved for the heirs of salvation. The Jews who are the elect of God receive mercy just like we receive mercy. So what application is that for us? We ought to be grateful for the tender mercies of God. By the mercy of God and by the grace of God, we are saved. We're absolutely saved. I'm reminded of Fanny Crosby, the blind hymn writer, who wrote a famous song called Blessed Assurance. You probably all know the, the lyrics for the first stanza if you're old enough to remember it. It says, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation. The Jews are heirs of salvation. We are heirs of salvation. Purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Now, you may not remember the second stanza, but it states this. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy. Whispers of love. Echoes of mercy. That is God's unending tender mercies that we experience in all three, the general, the special, and the sovereign mercies of God. We hear their echoes constantly. Now, I know that you've probably done this in your lifetime. Sometime you've let out a loud yell in an empty house or in a canyon or in a cave. You hear echoes, but those echoes fade. God's mercies never fade. They're echoes continuing. That's what she writes about. They continue. They are, as in Lamentation says, they are new every morning. So we should be thankful and we should be grateful. That song, Blessed Assurance, taught people that God was always merciful and that he gave salvation to those whom he called to himself. In fact, if you remember Ira Sankey, he went around singing with uh, Dwight Moody, D.L. Moody, during the late 1800s, early 1900s. Well, he writes this how that had an impact. During the recent war in Transvale, most of you know where Transvale is, don't you? Not Transylvania, Transvale. I won't go into it, but it was a war down in South Africa when the British took over from uh, the, the, the area from the Zulus and they conquered it. Then the Boers thought that they needed to go and take it back and they had a war down there. It says, during the war, Sankey said this, a gentleman at my meeting at Exeter Hall in London in 1900 said, when the soldiers going to the front were passing another company who they recognized, their greetings used to be 494, boys, 494. And the returning salutation back to them was six further on, boys, six further on. The significance was this. There was a copy of the small edition of sacred songs and solos that were sent to the front. And at the front there, the men had those songbooks. And on page 494 was the song, God be with you till we meet again. Because they were going to war. They didn't know if they were coming back or not. But six further on boys 
or the number 500 was the song, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. And then echoes of mercy, whispers love. Do you think they needed that? They did. And they would call that back and forth to each other. Let me give you this last explanation that Paul gives in verse 32. It says, For God has consigned all to obedience that he may have mercy on all. Now, folks, this doesn't proclaim universalism as most people or some people think it does. When we come to the word all in the scripture, you have to discern how it is used in its context and to whom it speaks. For example, and we've talked about this before, all can mean everyone or it can mean to those to whom it speaks. For example, in the book of Luke, what did Caesar Augustus do? He sent out a decree that all the world should be registered. So does that mean everyone in the world? Even those in China and Britain and Ireland and India that were living at that time? No. It was only those in the Roman Empire that were under Caesar Augustus' rule. So when we look at that word all, we have to be very careful how we interpret it. And in this context, it does not mean all without exception. Because we know some people are going to be lost. And they're going to be in hell for eternity. What it does mean is that without distinction, both Jews, both Gentiles were disobedient. Therefore, Jews and Gentiles will receive mercy when they call upon the name of the Lord. But only the elect of God will do so. So the final application this morning is this. As we prepare next week to go into this wonderful doxology, which deals with many attributes of God, talking about the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God, and the inscrutability of God. How many of you ever heard a sermon about the inscrutability of God? Well, you will next week. Okay, so I want you to come back so that you can see what that means. The application for us is this, not only being grateful for what God has done by giving a spirit of stupor to the Jews in order that they could be jealous over us to be saved. And he continues to save Jews until this day. But we should respond in praise that we are among those who are heirs of salvation, the purchased of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. And that is irrevocable. That will never change. So we should break forth in praise to the Lord, looking at his mercies and saying, Lord, it is true. Your mercies are new every morning. So we give praise to God who continues to call people unto himself, that he has called us to himself. And so we praise him for his mercy and we don't become wise or proud. We in humility, say like Mephibosheth, we are but dead dogs. Who are we that you would bless us in this way? But you have, and we are thankful, and we give you praise. So let's do that right now. Father, thank you. Thank you that we can praise you from an humble heart that admits to you that we are like all people. We are all sinners and we fall short 
of the glory of God. But in your mercy and in your grace, you've reached down, you've called us to yourself. You have saved us. So we give you praise, we give you honor, we give you glory in this hour. Again, Lord, we pray for our country. We pray that others would bow the knee to you. Lord, as you send out workers for the harvest so that we may begin a pathway back to civility, back to humility, Lord, and back to obedience unto you. Help us, Lord. Save us, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.